0: I'm talking to you now with headphones on. You're more than likely listening to this with headphones on, too. We're sharing a space in our ears and our minds. In some ways, on a grand and theoretical scale, it's like time travel, too. I'm speaking into this microphone and recorder, knowing that it will be heard later on. I guess more accurately, though, it could be described as a time capsule. Either way, this form of communication is rather unique. It represents a form of conversation, but it's one-sided in that I'm talking to you and you're listening, but we're not engaged in dialogue. This is almost like this big trick of podcasts I've found, that sense of conversation. I'll elaborate. So at this point, I think I've been listening to podcasts for about 15 years, which isn't that huge of a leap from listening to the radio in many ways, which I've been doing all my life. Sometimes it's in the background to give an energy and a sense of movement and time. And sometimes I've set aside a podcast to really enjoy and actively listen to, pushing it right into the forefront so I can properly get my listening, I guess, teeth into it, I guess you could say. But what I've realised through the years in thinking about how I listen and why, is that in listening I'm also asking and answering questions in my head, while analysing or scanning myself along the way. This is why I can't listen to podcasts when I sleep. There's too much going on in my brain and unless I've heard the podcast before, I can't relax. But it's the conversation element and where for me, podcasts sometimes manifest in my mind as a conversation. And now to completely manipulate that concept, let me direct a question at you. Do you ever get this? Is this how you listen to podcasts too or am I alone in this? I am curious to find out. To take this idea to another area of sound and the listening universe, let's think about sound itself. I won't ask, what is sound? That's not what I'm getting at. It's an interesting question, of course, but maybe one for another time. I'm thinking more here about the idea of active listening. There are some really simple ways into this. Alright, here you go. Try it right now. I'll just give you something to try yourself and then invite you to pause this and come back once you've tried it. Does that sound okay? All right, cool. Let's try it. So all you need to do is, with earphones removed, and whether you're on the move or completely still, start to focus your ears on the sounds that are happening around you. For example, if you're in a cafe and you hear a clutter of cups, aim your attention there and see how many sounds you can identify within that clutter. Pick it apart. Atomize it. How many cups clattered? What sounds are you hearing while it's all happening? To your left and your right. It's impossible to take it all in simultaneously, of course, but it's more about aiming your focus and thinking about what's reaching your ear, teasing apart the cloud of sound and thinking about what each of those sounds are. I'll do the same, actually. Wait, let me take these headphones off and I'll join you. Okay. All right, feel free to pause now and come back in in a minute or two. Whatever's good for you. I'll meet you back here. All right, so how was that for you? Did anything come up for you during that little journey? You might not have noticed anything at all, and that's all good. The real purpose is basically to sharpen your mind in that moment and become, and you can strike the following word of your podcast checklist for today present and in the moment. In some ways, you could also call this mindful listening, but no pressure. I know that word is used a lot, but it can be pretty useful shorthand sometimes. I find it's also useful with sound to differentiate what is sound and what is noise. The definition of noise can be broken down into two words. Unwanted sound. I find this definition the most immediately graspable and relatable. Neighbours, planes flying overhead, street repairs and so on. When we think of examples of noise, it becomes clear that noise is something being done to us. We are being noised we also don't like to think of ourselves as being noisy or generating noise. It's quite an interesting thing. There's always a sense of separation, of it coming from elsewhere. And usually noise isn't invited or something we want exposure to for extended periods. Saying that though, we might opt for white noise when we sleep. White noise is a strange one. It's basically a sound which contains every frequency at once. This is why it helps for sleep. It kind of masks everything and eliminates distractions in those moments when we need our minds to settle and prepare for sleep. This is just one example of how we can harness noise for our benefit, and it makes unwanted sound suddenly become invited sound. The more I think about sound, the more I realise that I'm approaching infinite worlds and dimensions. And in my mind right now, I feel like I'm this teeny tiny spaceship floating towards a sonic solar system, Me and my little notebook attempting to verbalise infinity. So before I get swallowed up entirely by the audio cosmos, I'll put an ellipsis right here with a to be continued marker and we'll meet back here soon. You are listening to the Blue Mind podcast from Haeckels in Margate. Think of this as your auditory escape hatch, safe space and your world within or outside of the world. It can be an escape or an entrance, a journey of discovery or straight up relaxation time. Whatever works best for you. I am your host, Buddy Peace, and mine will be the voice you'll hear narrating throughout. As you may have successfully deduced from how we began, in this episode of Blue Mind we will be exploring the infinite world of sound. Investigating, exploring and ruminating, and we will be joined by a practitioner and expert in the field. I spoke to Professor Angus Carlyle. Actually, before I get going on introductions, I'll let him speak for himself. Angus, the floor is yours.
1: Yeah, and if I, and if I get the wrong tone, just interrupt me and, and say, do that do that again. Yeah, hi, buddy. I'm Angus Carlyle, and I'm a professor of sound and landscape at the University of the Arts London.
0: Now, this title may reveal everything some of us need to know, but it's not always as simple as it sounds. So let's dig a little bit deeper, shall we?
1: So, I guess a shorthand description of what I do is I'm very interested, as my title, Professor of Sound and Landscape, indicates, uh, in the connection between where we live and what we hear. So, a lot of the work that I do involves field recording and trying to make sense of different environments through field recording, which is the use of microphones to capture sounds within the air or within water or through solids to provide a representation of a particular place.
0: But that is most certainly not all. As with my Sonic Explorers, there are many more outlets and streams in which Angus spends time. All different but linked with through lines and I guess what you could call connective audio tissue.
1: Alongside this uh, emphasis on sound, I also work with photography and film and text. So some of what I do is to write almost sort of diaristic responses to different environments. And in doing that, sometimes the sound part of the equation is not amplified, so there's not necessarily something to listen to. But I, as a person in a particular environment, experiencing a particular atmosphere, have used listening as a way of accessing what's going on, how to make sense of it. So historically quite a bit of my work involved engaging with environments at some distance from where I actually live. I've done a number of projects in Japan, some projects in Italy. In recent years, I've kind of pulled those horizons in and made a deliberate choice to work in the environments which are close at hand. So I'm two books through a trilogy of books which are about the experience of exploring on foot a series of environments that I can get to from my front door. So instead of going on a 13-hour flight to Japan and then taking another two-hour flight to go to an outlying island of Japan in the southernmost archipelago, I'm walking out of my door and going to some urban woods and exploring those. So although sound and landscape are the two dimensions which um, structure what I do, it's not always the case that I manifest that relationship through making a recording and instead what it might be is that there's a kind of listening attitude that's present at least to my mind in what I do.
0: I think the idea of local sonic exploration and what Angus just said there, this listening attitude, is wonderful. And I wondered actually if this idea of looking in nearby places for potential sound studies was something rooted in some kind of response to 2020's lockdowns. So in a sense, encouraging people to go and capture sound nearby, retaining and making the most of that listening attitude. It goes much deeper than this, it turns out.
1: Yeah, I think... What you've just said there encapsulates some of the motivation that informed this choice to try and scale back the kind of distances um, involved in these collaborative projects that I got got involved with in Japan and in Italy. But there were other factors as well. So one of the factors is, for me, that I became conscious of a certain irony where some of the um, conditions that I was exploring involved environmental stress... So there was an irony in investigating experiences of environmental stress through travelling in an environmentally destructive manner to conduct those investigations. And there's a very particular project that I worked on that created kind of echoes in my mind that wouldn't subside and made me consider and reconsider what it was that I was doing. And maybe it's a good idea to talk about that project so it's not too opaque. In 2011, an anthropologist called Rupert Cox, an environmental scientist called Kozo Hiramatsu and myself began a collaborative project which was situated in a farm in the middle of Japan's biggest airport, Narita Airport.
0: So this project Angus is referring to is called Air Pressure. I'll post links to it in the show description and you can have a look in some detail as the imagery is really great and really gives you an idea of the terrain. But don't go looking just yet, this is theatre of the mind, so let's get back on track.
1: We lived with a farming family who ran an organic small holding. really beautiful soil, incredible crops of great variety and really delicious to eat. And they were the last people holding on to a life in the middle of the concrete, glass and steel infrastructure of a massive international airport. So they lived in a farmhouse that was once one of many that inhabited these valleys and the plateau where the airport is now built. The irony for me was that the thing that made these farmers' lives so complicated and so difficult and so traumatic was the thing that had delivered me to their front door, the airport. So I needed to use international air travel to get to this place to create this collaborative project that we could work on together to document these people's experiences and we were particularly interested in the kind of medical effects of exposure to extreme levels of noise and the noise levels were very very profound the big jets would come in something like 40 meters above their farmstead when you see how big these are from underneath. The whole sky is occupied by reflective steel. You can see the heat coming off the engines and the sound levels are really scary. It's difficult for me to say they're scary because for me it was just two weeks during the planting season and two weeks during the harvest time later on the same year and that was it, my experience, whereas they've been living there since the airport started to be constructed in the 60s. So that kind of crystallised this sense that maybe... There was something that I needed to consider more carefully about the environmental cost of these long distance projects. So when you asked me why it was I decided to scale back the horizons on the kind of work that I was doing and to work more locally, one of the factors was about the environmental damage that might be involved in long distance travel.
0: There's a real self-reflection here, which isn't always a part of the process in a project. There's often an understandable kind of A to B approach. But I feel like with this project Angus was involved in, there was a C point as well as A and B.
1: And then another factor from a kind of more anthropological perspective, more documentary perspective, was as an outsider, was it my story to tell? So although we worked closely with the farmers and we did a subsequent project which was based around military aviation rather than civil aviation, and we tried to work closely with the islanders who were affected there, Was it their story to tell rather than our story to interpret and present? So that was another factor. And then I guess a third factor was about this question of accessibility that you brought up, which was that there's a kind of exoticism involved in both these Japanese projects and the Italian projects that I did. It was about finding the marvellous in the distant. And I guess what I wanted to do was to find the marvellous in the very local, in the stuff that was to hand, the stuff that you could walk to, and other people could too. So it felt more accessible to try and create some works that responded to the local environment.
0: Finding the marvelous in the very local. It's a really great phrase right there that leapt out at me immediately. I think in many ways, that's also what happens here at Heckles. The link with the ocean is tight and ever present, but it is for us here in Margate, local. And what continues to make me smile about that is something so simple. And that's how it links us all. I'll pause on that before I sidetrack off into a sub-podcast about how awesome the sea is, but I know that for those who do live by the coast, that marvellous is definitely local and is always there. For others who live in the country, the city, or wherever we all make our homes, there is that marvellous that is local to all of us. It's not always immediately obvious, but it's a very grounding and inspiring open window to have in your mind. But to come back to what Angus mentioned before this, about whether the story of the farmers in Japan who lived and worked under the constant shadow of air travel was indeed his to tell. This hints at some of what I feel is the philosophy underpinning his work. It's not just recording and presenting of sound because it sounds good. I mean, in some cases, this is enough, but there are more detailed and layered considerations in what he's doing. And it feels like they are something of a guiding light in the work, or if not that, then a kind of foundation on which it all sits.
1: And, you know, it's something that I regret as well. So the second project that we worked on, it was on a, a Japanese island called Okinawa, which was the site of the last big battle of World War II, which was you know, absolutely devastating for the people on the island, for the Japanese forces and for the American forces, and is something that, given the longevity of the Okinawan islanders, is still present in many people's minds. So that was a project where we tried to develop methodologies of working that would involve local people in guiding us in a much more active and amplified way so that we were listening through their ears. And we realised that this was a film-based project and we realised that the the, the first people who had to see the film would be the islanders. So we organised a tour of some community centres that were chosen because... They had a particular relationship to the work we'd done, so there were people who we'd interviewed, went to the community centres or a place that we recorded. Or... So there was a connection there. And then I made the choice to not travel to see the premiere of this film. So without wanting to make it sound as if I've, you know, I'm have you sort of burdened by this, and nonetheless, there are kind of costs, emotional costs, and kind of rewards that you give up if you want to move and experience the world in different ways. Having said all of that, since around about 2016, where I've been working very locally, I've been really pleased about the different kinds of practices that have been involved in that shift and the different kinds of sensory experience that have opened up to me. And strangely, and I've never really thought about this until I talked to you, one of the things that I gave up when I started to make much more local work was field recording. And it's only recently that I've come back to it and I've kind of made, made peace with it as, as another thing that I can do locally. What I feel is that all of these different experiences have helped frame what it is that I'm doing today, which is very different from what I was doing 10 years ago.
0: I had to think about this and why it might have happened. The slight break away from field recordings after spending more time working in a more local capacity. Let me explain my train of thought, if I may. There have been periods in my own life where I've carried a digital recorder around with me in the same way I have my phone near me. In some ways it was kind of like that whole, but what if I get an important phone call when I'm out, kind of attitude I guess. But in this way with the recorder, it was more about what if I heard a sound that I really wanted to capture. When I put the pieces together though, these periods were when I was in places that I wasn't familiar with. I travelled quite a bit in the 20 teens two of the more memorable journeys being in and around the US and in Laos, in Southeast Asia. It must have been down to simply how different the environment was, how it made my own brain responses fire up, and maybe even warning triggers in there, being somewhere so different. But I felt this urge to record, document, capture all of this unfamiliar sonic territory. I'd make eight-hour recordings of downtown LA by hanging a mic out of a window overnight, or take a walk down a dusty road in Luang Laos, with chickens, mopeds, mosquitoes and inquisitive locals all around. But for some reason, where I live, I've slowed down on the field recordings. If I take the recorder to the sea, it will definitely kickstart the love of it and the intrigue again. But it becomes harder to find, well, going back to what Angus said, that marvellous in the locals sometimes. But if I heard a recording of Margate while I was somewhere like Japan, i feel like I'd love it so much and really treasure it. It's quite a strange duality, but to go back to that mini-exercise from earlier, at the beginning, that process of picking apart what's happening around you, sonically, sometimes that's the way out of these slumps, finding that interest, difference, and detail, and really thinking about it. I put it to Angus, whether there really is a philosophy woven into his practice and process, and how baked into his work it all is.
1: I think that's a really brilliant way of putting it, buddy. This idea that the, you know, that you make the methods and the motivation and the kind of result all integrated into a kind of holistic totality. And I think that's, that's what is potentially really exciting. And maybe that was the element that was a little um, absent from some of the previous projects but having said that, even in those more kind of um, documentary or anthropological based projects I always created a space where my own presence would be something that was um, advertised and um, I know that there's a lot of very established schools of field recording that get described through um, manuals and online guides where the one thing that you're supposed to do is to absent your own body and self from the recording so you're taught to wear you know cotton rather than uh, nylon clothing so that you don't rustle no breath yeah whereas the stuff that I do tends even during these periods where I was doing this this more kind of orthodox documentary anthropological work you would still hear my breath or me speaking or engaging with people or becoming a subject of interest and attention. or And then alongside that, and this maybe is what led its way into the writing that I was doing, I was always writing and making public field notes from the different projects that I got involved with. So in 2008, I was commissioned to do a project in London for a gallery exhibition that was documenting the transition from the lower lee valley as it was being redeveloped towards the olympic site ahead of the 2012 london olympics so i chose an area of land measuring 100 meters by 100 meters by pudding mill lane station and just went back to this one area of land over three months and just listened and then started to record. And during that process, I was writing accounts of what I was experiencing, what I was missing, what I was hearing, how I was getting there how I was experimenting by putting on a high-vis vest and would this make me blend in to the workers who were starting to come into the site would it mean that the local school kids would leave me alone or would I actually become a magnet for people asking if I was doing some industrial testing or so I've always been interested in in creating this kind of narrative outside the texts and sometimes that narrative becomes vocal like so with that London project which was for a gallery exhibition. I read my voice into the environment, so I read these notes back into the environment and then that became what you heard in the gallery, my voice and the different sounds of coots, of diggers, of workmen talking, of school kids throwing rocks in the canal. Yeah, so sometimes these elements of your work, and I'm sure this happens to anyone, that were previously kept at a particular scale over time, start to become more and more prominent, almost without you perceiving them to
0: be. This attitude towards sound recording could be seen as almost anarchic. As Angus says, there are some schools of thought which truly believe that the person recording must be removed without trace. Not even removed, more like they were never there to begin with. I understand this if you are capturing specific sounds, or if your focus is on an area or a group of people, an object and so on. Having sounds coming from your clothing, breath, handling of equipment and so on can be total taboo, and also quite distracting at times. But it doesn't have to be a hard and fast rule. There are times, of course, when sounds creep in and it can sound like an accident. But when there's intention behind it and the person recording becomes a part of the fabric and the context of the piece itself, it verges on art, and perhaps at its most extreme, performance art.
1: And so by the time I got to about... 2016 I was writing things without doing the field recording part of it so
0: I interrupted Angus at this point to put it to him that it was like transcribing of sound
1: yeah you've said it better than me I mean that, that's a really lovely way I'm going to use that from now so transcribing the field recording so that's that's literally the case and in that London project I did that really literally where I would use a pen to record a, a sound wave and, and I think this is really interesting and I think this is part of maybe one of the exciting things about what's happening to field recording at the moment is that it's gone from being something that's very forbidding and uh, apparently inaccessible to something that people can contribute to by using a smartphone relatively cheap equipment and a lot of imagination and um in you know, the period of time that I've been investigating the relationships between sound and environment there's been an enormous explosion in attention of lots of different people to field recording and then alongside that there's been a, an equal expansion in how many people are contributing to lots of public field recording projects so if you look at like online sound maps some of them have huge numbers of contributors and yes when you look at the map as a global map it tends to be the north and in industrialised countries who are most active in their contributions but that's changing too and um, I think that it's very exciting that things are changing like this and you don't need this extremely expensive dedicated kit to do something
0: We'll return to Angus Carlisle very soon In the meantime though let's take a pause at this point in the Blue Mind podcast from Heckles To rest our ears, our minds and if this is available to you, entire bodies while we take a thought break. So if you're unfamiliar with the podcast, the thought break is a pause in the proceedings to reflect or to absorb, to be still and to let sound wash over you. It's a moment where instead of tapping the pause icon on the podcast itself to take a breather, the work is done for you and the pause takes the form of a collage of recordings. This collage is assembled free from environmental context and unrestrained by geographical location. And created specially for meditative moments to recharge your batteries and simply leave on. Be it in the background while you jump on an errand or two. Or in the foreground while you sit, breathe and quite simply be. I'll bring you back in when we're approaching the re-entry into the podcast itself. But in the meantime take a few minutes to indulge in the act of allowing sound to just wash over you all right back soon Welcome back in. I very much hope you were able to take either the still, quiet, meditative path or travel through your mind and take a journey somewhere in those moments. I think it's nice to just have that chance to dream a bit while you're listening. It's a gift that the Heckles podcast is giving you. You need not feel guilty. It's all a part of the podcast. That's your own personal bonus gift as a listener. Actually, on that subject, we will have an actual meditation for you, which will follow our guest Angus and that will be delivered by the wonderful Heckles House therapist Lottie, but that's all to come. You've been hearing from Professor of Sound and Landscape, Angus Carlyle. I felt like there was a really nice connection through what happens here at Heckles and the world in which Angus is involved. Of course, Heckles delivers ocean-derived therapies and treatments, to sum it up in a few words, but the environment, the landscape, the ever-simultaneously inviting and aloof sea You could substitute those words for empathetic and unforgiving. The sea contains multitudes, as we all know. And of course, the sounds around us, whether in Margate or where you're currently listening. It all plays a part in what we do here, and life in general. Not only that, but the therapy side of it, all in Heckle's house and in the London store. Sound is an integral part of these as well. But let's get back to Angus. We were talking about the democratisation of recording equipment, and how so much equipment which has in the past times been very much out of reach for so many of us, but through advancements in technology have since become available through much more affordable means. I wondered how Angus felt about the availability of equipment, and this is an interesting moment because I soon realised that what I was asking was all wrong. I'll admit it. I basically asked if he thought that we all might be missing out on a level of audio quality through having wider access to recording gear. I'm telling you this because it led on to a really fascinating point about what quality even is, as well as some cool facts about our ears. But in the interest of full disclosure, I thought I'd also tell you why I don't like my phrasing of the question. You know what, I'll include it here, but just know that I was sort of kicking myself not long after. I often wonder if, because you can do it on a, on a phone or anything, whether that speeds up getting from the idea to the result or there's just a spontaneity to it or if you would get a much better more accurate result with better equipment perhaps
1: yeah i think what you've asked me there opens up so many different dimensions to it i think it's a really brilliant question I and mean, there's lots of ways to try and answer it i guess the simplest answer that i can offer is no it doesn't reduce the quality of what's on offer, that people have access through these cheaper devices to making audio recordings. I I genuinely think it increases it. But I also think there's a question about what quality means. For me, as someone in his mid-50s who is losing the upper frequency spectrum of his hearing, and then I've got a particular hearing condition, it means I'm also losing the lower pitching. Everything's kind of coming in from the extremes into the center you know, which is fine and it's part of the natural ageing process. I can look on a screen and I can see a computer displaying a sonification of the field recording. So I can see in colour a spectrogram representing where all of the different frequencies are placed and the kinds of energies of the sound. But if I'm listening, I'm not necessarily hearing very much of that. So. I think the question of quality and issues about compression on a smartphone audio-to-digital converter is one thing. But then there's another thing, which is, for me, I'm reluctant to promote a kind of virtuosic listener because I think everyone listens differently. So if I take my headphones off and, and look at my ear the shape of the ear, all of the different parts of it. So it's the, the kind of outer ear or the oracle um, has all of these amazing different components to it. It has the lobe, has the tragus, it has the helix, it has the, all of these different parts of the ear. And everyone's ear is different from everyone else's to such an extent that in the 19th century, right the way through to today, ears have been used in not just criminal but other conditions to identify people so there are many court cases which have turned on evidence of an ear print so there's there's specific cases where let's say a burglar rests her ear against a glass window and it leaves an impression of the ear that's uh, able to be forensically recorded so that would be one case but in the u.s uh, penal system they take ear impressions as as well as fingerprints Uh so they take photographs of the ears There's a lot of um, startups out there that are looking to use ears as an identification system. So there's a smartphone app which uses the way that the ear moisture conducts against the smartphone as a way of unlocking the smartphone. And then I've seen one that's even more sophisticated than that, which is, this is again a kind of speculative technology, but they send a sound into your ear and then it bounces back using the individual shape of the ear to be reflected and then that sound is examined, and if the shape that comes back matches the shape that they already have as your ear, then the phone gets unlocked, otherwise it doesn't. So, in all of these ways, the ear is morphologically unique, and that, for me, is a kind of token of hearing's uniqueness. So, I think it's dangerous to establish a kind of standard against which hearing becomes quality, And some people hear better than others or listen better than others. And I think they listen differently, and that's not always the same thing. And I think with some of these projects that I've worked on, in places of great environmental stress, I think there's a tendency for people to shut down their hearing, physiologically, under the impact of very severe stresses. And that's why you get things like industrial workplace ear damage, because your, your ears are being damaged beyond... Ability to respond to the auditory environment, or they do it psychologically. They deliberately shut themselves out of what's happening. So I remember we once asked the Japanese farmer who was tilling this amazing organic farm in the middle of the airport, w- whether he listened for pleasure. And he's, he, he shrugged and said he couldn't. He could no longer hear the world as a positive place. So I think all of this is an interesting sort of revelation of the extent to which our hearing is special in its unique identities. And so as long as the smartphone or other device that allows you to participate in field recording can reflect that uniqueness, I think it's going to be great. And I think the uniqueness will come in how you hold the smartphone or where you hold it or what you do with the resulting sounds and how you compose with them. And I think that will retain this uniqueness
0: I think that's amazing, and I actually really enjoyed having that double back on something I was curious about which led into something I knew nothing about. I didn't know ears were being used as identification. No idea. But it makes sense. Our ears truly are as unique as any other part of us. Similar on paper, yes, but when you dial up the detail even a fraction of a degree, the individualities begin to reveal themselves. So of course, the idea of quality, in whatever vague sense to which I might have been referring, is almost redundant. How can there be a standard level of quality when we're all hearing things so differently? And what is quality? How accurately a recording captured an event or sound? The recording technique? The sound quality itself? It can mean so many things. But I love where the answer went. I'll definitely keep that in mind when I use words like quality in the future. There's also a whole idea of who defines quality too. This thing runs deep. Something I also wondered about while we were talking was actually a feature of this very podcast. As you may have noticed, every now and again, the sea will make an audio appearance. Let's say hello to it right now, in fact. Now, this is an old-fashioned expression, but sometimes in a film review, you'd hear the critics saying that, for instance, New York really plays a supporting character in this film. I mean, I say old-fashioned, sometimes it genuinely feels that way in a film. I don't say that to diminish, but there's a hint of that here in the podcast. I tend to think the ocean is like an ever-present guest. In my mind, and as a listener you might be able to tell me, this has a natural effect on the ear which appeals to those parts of the brain in tune with nature and ready to receive information from the natural world.
1: That, that's a really interesting observation, Buddy, and I think maybe that's a kind of counter-example to what I said about the uniqueness of hearing and listening because it does seem that a lot of researchers are confident that one of the things that we do respond positively to are sounds of nature. And this is called, amongst health researchers, they call it the biophiliac hypothesis, which is a, a kind of natural love of those sounds that are, and, and perceptual you know, sounds and sights that we relate to nature.
0: The biophiliac hypothesis. This isn't something I'd heard of before, and even though it's a term one might be able to deduce from the words themselves, I did a little digging and found that it was coined by a biologist and writer called Edward Wilson. He wrote a book called The Biophilia Hypothesis, the definition being... Human's innate tendency to focus on living things as opposed to the inanimate. I was
1: working on a project that was exploring the sounds that were experienced in an intensive care unit in a hospital. And so this involved us doing field recording in an intensive care unit in London and then taking those field recordings and then building a virtual translation of that intensive care unit in a training hospital. So we used lots of different speakers to recreate the sound levels and we calibrated these using special instruments called sound pressure level meters. So we'd made lots of recordings and we rebuilt the place virtually through all of these speakers. And then we invited patients, doctors, nurses and people from those wards to calibrate with their own ears rather than with these specialist instruments what they were hearing. And the reason we were doing this is we were working and the we here were nurse researchers acoustic engineers sound artists environmental psychologists and others what we were looking at was is there a way to counter what a lot of the evidence shows is the negative effects of the noise that people experience when they are trying to recover in an intensive care unit a noise that comes from machines from unwrapping medical equipment, because people are often on drugs in intensive care units, they're sometimes lapsing in and out of clarity. And so things that are overheard can take on different meanings in their heads. They can start to interpret them differently and interpret them traumatically. So once we'd set all of this system up and calibrated it, and we thought it sounded too loud, even though the instruments were saying that this was an accurate reflection of what we'd originally recorded. We were really lucky that some nurses, and I think a doctor who'd worked in the original ward that we'd recorded, said, no, this is fine, this is fine. We were really inclined to turn everything down because it just felt too, too present. And then what we did was we then experimented with lots of different kinds of noise reduction equipment. So some people got on beds and they put on noise-cancelling headphones. Other people had earbuds. And then we had, over the top, of the hospital ward an engineering company that we collaborated with put in a noise masking system so kind of like the seashore sounds that you talked about sort of bubbling up underneath a podcast to give the listener a different perception we introduced into the environment lots of different sounds just to see how people experience them and then we surveyed people's responses and one of the sounds that we used and this was inspired by what you just said there about the sea sounds. We we used um, the sort of trickling of a mountain brook and bird song and just to see what people felt about that. And it definitely was the case that people reacted positively to the sound, but whether they reacted positively to the sound and the noise combination was something that was beyond our ability to measure. And this project came up, we ended up writing an article in the British Medical Journal about it, but we didn't really pursue it further because there are so many variables... But I think a lot of people are looking at this anyway. You know, I can say all of this thing about the individuality of human hearing, but on the other hand, maybe there are things that we share in common as um, elements of calm or vibrancy in an auditory environment. And I think a lot of people register an affinity with the sound of the wave as it hits either shingle or beach and how that makes them feel but I think and this is an important thing to pick up maybe in in this conversation is that I wonder how much that is actually the sound of the wave that's creating that positive experience and how much is it being at the sea itself and the kind the kinds of things that have brought you to the beach are you on holiday have you come away from your workplace for a half an hour are you with your family or you know there's all kinds of different things I think I guess the point I'd make is that um, no sense travels alone. It's always working hand in hand with other senses. And so if we're hearing something such as the crash of waves on the beach and experiencing a positive relation to it that might connect to this biophiliac hypothesis, maybe it's not just the sound of it, but it's the smell of the sea and the... The feeling of the sand underneath our feet and the the knowledge that we're with friends or or whatever. I think that lots of things work together and it's hard to distinguish sound as an exclusive and solo sense.
0: It's a huge shame that I can't instantly transport you physically to a calm spot on the beach. Sunset, with a sky of smeared blue, pink and neon orange. The sea at mid-tide with a lush warm breeze flowing over the sand really the closest I can do is appeal to your memories and maybe that biophiliac response by playing some C sound for you. But it's true, there's so much involved in the actual physical experience of some of these sounds that form a huge part of it all. Recording the sea is a tricky one. You can try at high tide, but there's so much information coming into the microphone that it sounds like white noise. Basically this... So I found I need to try different tide times, distances, microphone heights and so on. It's a delicate one. i tried it with rain, traffic, crowds. There's something so fascinating about how sound, well, sounds different to what you expect when you throw a pair of headphones on. Films have entire departments dedicated to it. Some people wouldn't know this because often it's done so meticulously that there'd be no reason for you to notice that the sound had been recorded and edited afterwards. But cars, guns, sea, clothing. It has all, much more often than not, been added, or at the very least, treated afterwards. So sometimes when you hear the outside world through a microphone yourself, it doesn't sound as you might have been led to believe through the world of cinema. Yeah, and I think that
1: where things get really complicated and they come out of sync is exactly in the area that you identified there, which is the way that sound gets represented in television and film offers us a very different picture of the acoustic environment than the one that we arrive at through our ears and the other parts of our bodies that we experience the vibrating molecules that we call sound. So if you watch a film in which uh, there's air travel, you never hear the sound of the jet engines and the vibration of the fuselage. You just hear a calm conversation between two people, whether it's a comedy film about air flight, whether it's a thriller about air flight, or whether air flight is just incidental. You never actually hear that. And I think one of the things that's really exciting about the opening up of field recordings of practice is that people get an opportunity to challenge the way that they've had their acoustic environment represented to themselves. So once people can start to record things, they think, well, actually, that doesn't sound like that. Or when you're in a city street, you hear a lot more traffic and the voice doesn't have this kind of shielded, protected space that it tends to have in, in film and TV. And I'm not necessarily saying that there's a problem in that, but I I do think that what it does is it it lets people, maybe it creates a certain disappointment when people realise that their city doesn't behave like the represented city on on there. And and I think that that does affect how you treat field-recorded material. I think rather like going back to the example of where we knew that we'd recorded the hospital accurately, using very expensive mics on on tripods that had been carefully situated and calibrated. And then we adjusted the the values so that when we used a sound pressure level meter, the same reading came in our um, virtual hospital ward as it did in the real hospital ward. Even though we knew everything was right, when we listened to it, its presence was so profound and pronounced that we didn't believe the instruments in front of us and we didn't believe what we had done with the recording, and what we needed was a human voice from the nurses and doctors and patients to say, "No, actually, this is this is right. We know this environment, and uh, yeah. what you've done is accurate." And I think that we do. When we're mixing sound, maybe we hold ourselves a little bit back from the intensity that it can generate. And in both of the film and sound projects that I did in Japan, the one in the airport and the one around military flights in Okinawa, in southern Japan, criticisms that came from locals was that we hadn't pushed the intensity of the experience hard enough, that we'd step back a little bit. And with the the farming family, that was a genuine question that we, we had to struggle with because there were so many flights that if you were to accurately transcribe the experience that the farmers lived with day in, day out from dawn until well after dusk, it would be such a boring and also traumatic experience for anyone to come to the exhibition. I mean, I'm not very good at meditation, but I know that there are meditative practices that allow you to find a quiet inside yourself that um, steps back from, you know, external stimulus, whether it's noise or anything else. So we know that people can tune out of the environment that they inhabit whether for reasons of trauma or because they want to find something really beautiful and positive elsewhere or because they're paying attention to something that someone's whispering to them but you know we we know that the ears as connected to the brain and the rest of the body are able to filter themselves you know you don't need a software to do that we're doing it all the time no no i think What you just said there is one of the reasons I think that hearing becomes this incredibly sensitive membrane between us and the outside world because what we have as 21st century... Are we in the 21st century? Yeah, what we have as 21st century human beings is the remains of an evolutionary system that was developed as a warning system. So anything that comes in the ear is something that's coming in and being processed in exactly the way that you just described. It's being processed in order to determine what kind of threat it constitutes. And that that doesn't go away. That's something that's been baked in as a kind of evolutionary process of perceptual development. So that's why there are no ear lids. You know, that's why we continue to hear even though we're asleep. So I think that because it has this kind of warning system, I think there's a lot of the kind of CPU power of of the human brain is just devoted to just checking out what's going on in the ears. Because... It could be that something's behind you, it could be that something's f- far away that you need to deal with quickly. So I think that the, the ears do have that. So on the one hand, the ears might give us access to elements of the biophiliac hypothesis, the, the love of nature and the, the um, experience of beautiful surroundings but they also are there to provide us with threat alertness so there's this kind of oscillation between two different functions that get mixed up in lots of different ways and so yeah they're very interesting things and i think you know going back to when you know when you spend time looking at people's ears you you realize how much they're different from each other and i think that that difference is something that is a reflection of a perceptual difference too
0: there is an element in all of this, this world of sonic information, that I've not even mentioned yet. Our discussion didn't branch out as far as to even get started on it, to even scratch the tip of the surface of the iceberg of it. And I'm confident that it would constitute an entire podcast in its own right. But as Angus was talking, I thought about people who were born without hearing and those who lose a portion or all of the hearing in their life. Through a series of bouts with tinnitus throughout my own life, Tinnitus being essentially this sound, happening in your ears at most times. I've come to truly appreciate and be ever grateful for whatever hearing I do have left. I'm aware that this hearing may not be permanent. And I can honestly say that every day I do give genuine thanks that it is here at all. Angus also brought up the idea of ear which I've often thought about, especially at night when, over the past, I've certainly had moments where I'd do anything for a worldwide mute button. Admittedly, this is a somewhat selfish desire, but I'm sure in more sleepless moments of the night, a lot of you can relate. But I guess it does make sense, the idea of having no earlids. And of course, this is in the scenario of a hearing world, I will add, that our ears are open and ready to receive information at all times. On the subject of hearing, though, it would be so interesting to construct podcasts that are accessible for everyone of all hearing levels at all times. I'm definitely going to keep this in mind as we continue with Blue Mind. And I'm sure there are so many ways that this can be achieved. Like, like I've got a few ideas going through my head right now, like off the bat. And it's a really exciting road ahead. So yeah, uh, definitely stay tuned. I'm going to work on that. And while speaking of excitement, I meant to ask Angus, what excites him personally about a project? What are the triggers and sparks? How does the process begin for him?
1: I think in the majority of cases, it is a happy coincidence that has been the catalyst for a particular project. So for all of this work that happened in Japan, all of that is related to meeting the two other researchers. So Rupert Cox, the anthropologist, and Kozo Hiramatsu, the scientist. So meeting those two by accident in 2006 led to... project in in Narita Airport in 2010-2011 and then this other project called Zawawa which is in Okinawa and we've been doing that since 2011 as well but the most intense period of working on it was between 2007 and it's still going on now actually 2017 sorry and, and still going on now so all of those things came from a moment of coincident encounter but I guess what made them um, stick compared to all of the other potential coincident encounters that, that happened all, uh, at the same time was that we all three shared a curiosity about what could be done in sound that couldn't be done using perhaps more conventional documentary means. Particularly for the scientists for Kozo Hiramatsu what he was interested in is whether sound could be a way into community engagement in two different senses, so community engagement in involving the communities, in helping us understand their acoustic experience, and then secondly, using sound as a way of engaging other communities further afield. So, in both of those projects they've led to films which have been seen by people who have no experience of the histories involved. And both of these films are relatively opaque, so there's no direct-to-camera talking that you would expect in a documentary. So our ambition, all three of us, is that the sound can lead the audience into an experience, a vicarious experience of what might have happened in the environments that are being depicted in an image and in sound. So although what might have been the catalyst was this kind of coincident encounter, what happened afterwards was a more kind of um, measured uh, an ongoing process of unfolding a kind of curiosity about what's possible within the collaborative relationship and also within the relationship between us and the subjects, the people who actually inhabit these environments, and then the people who we might never see who become audiences of the work as it travels around. So I think that's that's one part of it. How these projects worked in terms of their involvement with sound in text and image and I think that even if a project is a book-based project that has no sonic component and the only image is a blurry picture on the cover, for me underneath the text is a kind of listening attitude, is a kind of openness and acceptance of Uh, blurring between the boundaries of what counts as an environment and what counts as someone perceiving that environment and i think that although i'm reluctant to attribute hearing with any great special powers it just so happens that it's the thing that i'm most interested in i do think that one of the things it does is it it does blur the differences between um, who we are and where we live so in the last part of our conversation I've heard my wife and adult daughter getting ready to go out and that's been distracting to me because um it's not something that I can't see them I can only see you in this big microphone in front of me but I can hear the vibrations of their activity and that's something that's kind of subtly altering who I am how I'm responding to you and I really like that about listening and I think It's great that it blurs these kinds of what is the interior and what's the exterior, what's domestic and what's public. And and I think some people would react negatively to that and they would want to protect a bubble of isolation and hide away from the sound. And for some people, such as the farmers in the middle of the airport, that's a really important life-preserving strategy. You have to protect yourself from that sound, otherwise you will be irrevocably damaged. But for me, living the privileged life that I do, I like the idea that these boundaries can be blurred through sound and that we lose track of what's me and what's the environment. And so that's a kind of attitude I can migrate from a listening experience where what I'm doing is taking the sound from an environment and replaying it into another environment, into an experience that may not ever take hold of an auditory dimension that may just be written. But then going back to something that you said, which is the kind of irreducible auditoriness of things. So what you said was, when we still our mind, when we try and block out the external sounds, we still hear because we have this voice that bubbles up within that is our kind of verbalised consciousness. So even in those moments of total tranquility, of silence, where we've managed to block almost everything else out, there's still sound of sorts. That's coming from inside. I remember writing something in, you know, the mid-2000s that explored this thing when you wake up and you're not sure what's a sound and what's not a sound, what's, w- what's within you and what's without you. And, and I still hold to that idea that these kind of slightly deranging blurring of boundaries is something that's really powerful about sound in both positive terms and negative too.
0: What Angus said at the end there ...about how there was a rippling of activity in the house while he was talking... ...and how that affected how he was responding to me. The fact that he didn't ask to run through the whole thing again... ...or have another run at the response to nail the perfect take. That says so much about how he works. I can imagine this kind of thing in past projects he's been involved in. Like if something happens while recording that isn't the, in quotes, script... ...he won't wait for the perfect undisturbed take. This isn't to speak on his behalf... But this is what I intuit through speaking to him. There's so much life involved, it's all happening around us at all times without any break. And I guess that to treat sound differently or somehow outside of life in the living world is to abstract it from our senses and distance us from it. Sometimes it is of course necessary to get an uninterrupted take. This goes without saying, for instance, right now, I would prefer it if I wasn't interrupted by something I had to stop for... Alright. Shoot. Go away, shoot! Uh, hold up. Uh, where was I? Something about interruptions. Anyway, sometimes we need a perfect take, and sometimes a recording will benefit and truly breathe with some life in it. It's down to the person holding the microphone to make that decision, ultimately. But it's a good thing to hold in your mind if you are that person. I'd like to thank Angus so much for his contribution to the Blue Mind podcast and would invite you to check on his work in the links in the show notes. Some really amazing projects there and you'll find out more about the air pressure project too. So much to think about. So what I will do now is give you another chance to calmly cross the bridge from our chat with Angus Carlisle and make our arrival to the final stop in our podcast journey with a gorgeous meditation from Lottie. This will be a thought break of sorts, but I'll play you some sweet slow drones to give you a moment and we'll meet back here. Welcome back in. So, we have one more stop to make in the Blue Mind bubble, which will give you a proper chance to really take a wander outside of the confines of the surroundings of your head, or maybe go even further inside. Whatever your perspective, you're most welcome. And I can't wait to reintroduce you to your good friend Lottie in the Blue Mind podcast. Lottie is a professional therapist in Heckle's house. Who guests on each episode whenever possible to to deliver a uniquely crafted meditation for you. Unique to each episode, written and voiced by Lottie. I'll pass over to her for now, and I absolutely invite you to find somewhere comfortable and, with any luck, horizontal, where you can break off a piece of the day for yourself. I'll see you back here afterwards for the Blue Mind Bubble farewell, but before that, dear listener, here, once more, is Lottie.
2: Hearing is a subconscious act where the mind is not involved, whereas listening takes place in conscious thought involving the mind. The sounds we hear are usually out of our control, and we like certain sounds that we hear a lot more than others, but we should greet them all with an open curiosity, and not try to control what we can't. So if you feel comfortable doing so, we're going to gently close our eyes and open our ears. Bring your attention to the muscles around your ears, and the tiny muscles inside your ears, and let these muscles relax. Now take a deep breath down into your belly, hold it for a second, and then exhale, and notice the sound of your breathing. Take another deep breath in for the count of four, hold it for a second, and then exhale, and when you exhale, make a noise so you can hear that sigh coming out. And notice the vibrations in the air. So breathe in. Hold for a second. And then exhale. <sighs> Hear the other sounds that may be taking place around you, whatever they might be. The sound of my voice, music busy road outside, birds, a washing machine, whatever the sound is, just let it wash through you because there's absolutely nothing you need to do. Feel a sense of space inside yourself. We don't have to hold on to any of these sounds or try to fight against them. Just greet them with openness and let the vibration pass through you. And you can take this understanding with you into your day. Now carry on meditating like this for as long as you wish and whenever you're ready, slowly come back into the room.
0: blue mind podcast was produced arranged and scored by me buddy peace blue mind is the name of an excellent book by wallace j nichols which is essential reading for anyone with an interest of all things sea related thank you so much to wallace for spiritual inspiration for this podcast the blue mind podcast is produced for haeckels which you can find online at haeckels.co.uk and that is spelt h-a-e-c-k-e-l-s or physically 18 Cliff Terrace, Margate, which you'll find up near the old Lido. Also, let me just give you an update on locations too, because there is now a Heckle's house in London, and that is located at number 16, Broadway Market, London, E8, 4QJ. It's an absolutely beautiful location, and I really highly recommend you pay a visit if you're in and around the area, or or just passing through London, of course. Well worth a visit. You can also find Heckels on Instagram over on at for product updates, ocean-based positivity and innovations from all over the world. There are regular posts and stories, so it's almost like a constantly evolving blog of sorts. Loads for you to get lost in. We're also on Spotify, where I compile weekly playlists. Just do a quick search for Heckels on Spotify, spelled the same, you'll find us. The playlists are around an hour or more of blissful sonics and beautiful music from all around the world compiled and selected by hand without any algorithm assistance each week is unique and is like an escape button if you need it i would also encourage you very strongly to sign up to the heckles newsletter which you can do so on the heckles website most importantly of all though so many thanks to you for listening and being a part of this it's a thrill that you're here and listening to the very end thank you so much we appreciate you we very much look forward to you joining us again